Good morning. It is good to see each one of you here. I want to especially welcome the visitors. It's good to have you here worshiping with us. And I see some home folks who are home for a visit, so welcome back. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father in heaven, we come to you this morning with open hands and hearts. Lord, we desire to hear from you, and I pray that the words that I speak would be clear. I pray that you would speak through this message, and may we be encouraged, and may our hearts um, be open and receptive to what you have for us. Lord, help us to um, receive and hear, and pray that you would Also be with the service up in Elkhart. Lord, I pray a blessing on Justin as he preaches there. Bless their service, and may their time together bring you honor and glory. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Years ago, I worked on a construction crew, and one evening as we got ready to go home, um, most of us had a a company truck that we drove, so our employer provided us with a vehicle to drive to and from the job site and to do whatever we needed to to fulfill our duties as employees. As we got ready to leave that evening, we were getting in our trucks, getting ready to, to go home, and one of the guys jumped in his truck, and, and it was obvious that he was sitting there. The truck didn't want to go for some reason. It was running, but he would he would you could tell it like he would rev it up and it would kind of and it wouldn't it just wouldn't move and so we finally went over and and uh, we started talking to him and asked him a little bit what's going on he said well he said it feels like feels like this thing like it just doesn't want to go he said it feels like the brakes are stuck or something and so he would we'd say well rev it up once are you sure you're in gear yeah he had it in gear and he'd rev it up and it would and it would just stop and so you know we're trying to figure out what's going on. So I, I finally started questioning him. And I remembered back that throughout the day, he had made a run to the local lumber yard to get some materials of some sort. And he took his truck. And so I, I started questioning a little bit. I said, well, did your truck work when you went to the lumber yard? And he said, well, yeah, it did. And I said, well, what did something happen on the way to the lumber yard or the way home? It was just seemed a little strange. It was just sitting there. And fun questioning um, he, he finally disclosed that, well, he had been doing some power braking on the way to the lumber yard. Now, how many of you know what power braking is? Most of the men do, at least, and if the youth don't, I hate to give them an education here this morning. I think they know what it is, but, and you ladies probably won't understand this, so, <laughs> but there's, power braking is when you step on the brake, and then you step on the gas. And so the brake holds the vehicle and you rev up the engine until you get the RPMs going fast enough. And then you let off of the, the brake and you're able to turn the tires and make some nice sounds and smoke and it smells good. And I don't know, for some reason, we as men, we kind of get a thrill out of that, right? And so that's what had happened was that when he went to the lumber yard that day, he was um, having a little fun. The interesting thing was... It wasn't his truck. He didn't put the tires on it. He didn't fix the brakes. Our employer took care of all of that for us. He provided the gas. He provided the vehicle. He maintenanced the vehicle. He changed the brakes. 
And that vehicle was given to us to fulfill our responsibilities as employees. So as we worked for the boss, it was kind of a benefit because I didn't have to drive my vehicle to the job site. And when I needed a vehicle to pull something, I had the proper equipment for what we needed to do. You see, he was enjoying burning the tires off of that vehicle. It gave him a thrill. It was enjoyable. It was, um, I don't know, man, what, what is it about it? It's just, there's just something about it. It just, it just feels kind of good. And, um, and nobody really benefits from it except the person enjoying it and your local tire store. So Lyle is probably a big promoter of, of power braking as long as it's you, right? Because it ruins the tires. It, it burns the tire. It actually, I mean, it, it makes the tire dis disintegrate. It makes it wear out quicker. And then you have to replace them. He was burning the tires off of that vehicle at the expense of the employer. It was not his vehicle. It wasn't going to cost him anything. And in the process, not only was he burning the tires off, he was also burning up the brakes. And that's what happened was the brakes somehow had gotten locked up and eventually it, it let loose and he was able to go home. But he was burning the tires off of that vehicle. I have some, some statistics here for you this morning. In general population, this isn't necessarily just Christian, but in our general population, there are 40 million Americans who are regularly visiting pornographic sites. It is estimated by 2025, virtual reality porn industry will be 1 billion in comparison to virtual reality NFL-related content, which is now 1.23 billion and virtual reality video games, which are 1.4 billion per year. Only 55% of adults, 25 and older, believe that porn is wrong. 90% of teens and 96% of young adults are either encouraging, accepting, or neutral when they talk about porn with their friends. 90% of teens and 96% of young adults are either encouraging, accepting, or neutral. And so most of them, what that's saying is most of them say, this isn't a big deal. It doesn't really matter. Matter of fact, teens and young adults ages 13 to 24 believe that, it is, that not recycling is worse than viewing pornography. And so you not taking your empty ketchup bottle and putting it in the recycle box in town, that is worse than watching pornographic material. And we look at those statistics and we say, that is so sad, but that's general population. We as Christians are doing better, but are we? So the general Christian category, 64% of Christian men and 15% of Christian women say they watch porn at least once a month. 
One in five youth pastors and one in seven senior pastors use porn on a regular basis and are currently struggling. That's more than 50,000 U.S. church leaders. And only 7% of pastors report that their church has a ministry program for those struggling in porn. And we say, well, yeah, but that's, that's general Christianity. So we as Anabaptists, we as we here at Sandy Ridge, we're, we're, we're doing better than that. But in some st- statistics done by Sadler College, which is considered probably Mennonite, most of the, the students that would go there would be Mennonite, and some of their statistics that they did, at an Anabaptist rally or church conference where they polled, they said 35% said they have an ongoing problem with porn. And so out of our, our type of people... These are the people who choose to go for a weekend to a conference. It's not just across the board. So we are ready, probably the people that choose to go there, we would probably say are spiritually on fire. Are the ones that are, they're the ones who are, are trying to learn more. They're trying to do better. They're the ones that are here at the conference and they're saying 35% of us are struggling. At a conservative Anabaptist Bible school in Holmes County, 46% of the students said they have an ongoing problem with porn. In an average conservative Anabaptist church, 60 to 65% say they are struggling with porn. And so on a bench where we get 10 people, 6 to 7 are saying, yeah, we struggle with this. You know, it's a sad and dangerous time when it's easier for a preteen to watch porn than it is to get a drink of water. And we say, now, wait a minute here. But see, he can sit on the couch and he can get to something and look at something from the comfort of the couch when maybe mom and dad are on the other side of the room and they don't even know it. It takes less effort to do that than it does to get up and go out to the kitchen and get a drink. That's how easy it is to get it. And it's a dangerous time that we live in. And it is affecting us. There's a study done by Samuel Perry, and this was a study of 3,000 people over a six-year period. So this is a large a large sample of people over six years. And he discovered that there's a direct correlation between how much porn exposure you have and how much service you give to the church. And this is what he found. He says, a person who never or rarely uses porn, there's a 33% chance that he will serve in some capacity in the church. A person who watches porn every month, there's a 10% chance that he will serve in some capacity in the church. A person who watches porn every week, there's a 5% chance that he will serve in some capacity in the church. And a person who watches porn weekly, there's almost a 0% chance that that person is going to serve in some way in the church. You see, it does affect us. It does affect me. It affects you. 
You see, this addiction is sweeping our nation like a tsunami. It's like a big tidal wave that's taking over. And it's affecting us. It's affecting our nation. It has affected our nation. We're now seeing what happens when a nation has been affected by things like this. It affects our churches. It affects our own personal lives. And in some ways, we, we maybe we look at those statistics and we wonder, well, is there, even, is there anything that we can do about it? Is there any way to minimize this damage? Or maybe you, this morning, you, you say, well, I don't struggle with that. I'm glad I don't. And I wish other people would get their act together. But I'm going to broaden it a little bit. It's not just pornography that affects us. I'm going to refer this morning to it as unwanted sexual behavior. So I'm going to open it up wider than just pornography. And I'm going to use the term USB. And I'm not trying to minimize this sin. I'm not trying to minimize and make it and candy coat it. What I'm trying to do is to give you a term that encapsulates maybe more than just pornography. So when I speak of USB, I'm referring to these things. Pornography, fantasy, self-gratifying sexual actions, things that you do personally to bring gratification. Explicit or erotic books or movies. It's things that we watch, books that we read. Frequenting dating sites for my own personal pleasure. Sexual, virtual reality interaction. And suggestive interaction with someone other than your spouse. And I'm saying, if pornography affects us in that way, I think all of these affect us in that way also. Have a negative effect on our lives. And maybe you say, well... I don't fall into that, or some of these things, I don't even know what they are. And I realize this is a sensitive subject, and we're in a mixed audience. And maybe it would have been better if I would have shared this at our men's group, at our men's meeting. But brothers and sisters, I think we have to overcome a belief that this is a man problem. It's not just the man problem, but there are ladies that struggle with these exact same things in one shape or another, maybe in different forms, but they're also facing struggles. And I think it's time we call it out that it's, it's not just the man problem, but that we also offer help to our ladies who are struggling, and that we offer help to our men. And that's ultimately what the point of this message is. And if you saw in your bulletin, it's going to be a two-part message. And so next Sunday, I will be preaching part two of this message. And ultimately, that's where we want to come out, that there is help available. But how do we get there? And today's message is calling it out for what it is and identifying it. This is something that is bigger than just a man problem but it's something that we face in our churches. It's something that our ladies face and that some ladies struggle with also. 
You see, men and women alike are faced with these addictions. And ultimately, the reason that we face these is because I'm trying to live out my own pleasure or my own desires. It's a selfish reason. Could I have one of the ushers bring me a glass of water, please? I want to draw to your attention to a scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. It says, What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? For ye are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. You see, he's saying here, you realize that you were in a lost state. You realized that there was nothing you could do to help yourself. And you came to Christ and you asked for salvation. But part of that salvation is giving up who I am. It's giving up my desires. It's giving up my life. We talk about giving our, our heart. And you see, when I give my heart, my heart is what encapsulates my whole being. And so it's my heart. It's my desires, it's my passions, it's what drives me, it's what, it's also my, my body. It's also the body that God has given me that I, that I live out of. It's, it's this being that, that, that people around me see. But you see, this isn't really mine. Because I'm not going to take it with me when I go to heaven, amen? Amen. This body's going to stay here. If it were mine, it would go with me. But it's going to stay here. It's a vehicle that God has given me to use for his kingdom. It's a vehicle that God has, has allowed me to use to do the work that he's given to me. It's something that God has blessed us with. And God maintains it. God gives us the ability to, to use it. He also gives us what it needs to be maintenance. But I have to take care of the maintenance. I'm responsible for the maintenance. You see, God has given us this body to use. And I feel so often like we're burning the tires off of that vehicle. And this morning, as you think of your body that's been given to you by God to use for his kingdom, to honor and glorify you, I say, don't burn the tires off your vehicle. Don't for your own honor and glory or for your own desires and to fulfill what, what you want. But God has given us this body to use for him. He's the one that gave it to us. He's the one that put the tires on. He's the one that pays the insurance. He's the one that puts gas in it. When we're thinking of a regular vehicle, that's what God does. He trusts us with this, and now I take this vehicle, my body, and I, and I use it for what I want to. I use it for my own pleasure. And I ask you this morning, are you burning the tires off of your vehicle? 
Are your tires smoking? Are you enjoying the pleasures of sin for your own desires, fulfilling your own needs, your own wants? Are you burning the tires off your vehicle? Well, why do we need to talk about things like this? I believe we need to talk about things like this because it affects us in a very real way. I believe that it, it affects our lives, our personal lives. It affects our marriages. It affects our families. It affects our church. It affects our communities, and ultimately it affects the world around us. You see, what I practice in my closet or in secret, it affects my daily walk with the Lord. And do I have any business claiming to be a child of God while actively living in sin? And really, what sexual integrity does God expect from me as a believer? As a believer, Are you burning the tires off your vehicle? Turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 51. How many of you read the front of your bulletin this morning? I just think it's interesting. Next two Sundays, the message will be taken from Psalm chapter 50, Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is a psalm of David. And if you remember the story, and I'm, going to, I'm not going to go in detail about David's story, but if you remember, David found himself up on his housetop one evening. And he's probably up there, I don't know if you were outside last night, it was breezy, but it was a beautiful evening. It was warm, and it was, I imagine it was a night like that. And I was personally sitting out on my porch doing some studying, and I imagine David thought one night, hey, it's a nice night, I'm going to go up on the rooftop and just look around. And as David was looking around, he looked over at his neighbor's house, and he saw Bathsheba bathing. And David was tempted. David could have walked away from that, but what David did was he sent a messenger and said, have that lady come to the palace. And you know what happened. It's a long story, but what happened, Bathsheba came to the palace. Sometime later, word came back to David that said, Bathsheba is pregnant with your child. And so David, wanting to cover up and wanting to make things look good, tries to figure out a plan to hide this. And immediately he, he calls to his, his, um, his commander-in-chief of his army. They were, the army was away fighting a battle. And he, and he called him home. And he said, or he, he sent a message to him. And he said, have Uriah, who was Bathsheba's husband, have him come home from the battlefield. And so Uriah came home. And David's idea was she would come home, or he would come home. And then he would be here for a time. He would go back to battle. And then pretty soon people would be aware that Bathsheba is expecting a child and they would assume, well, Uriah was home and it's his child. And that didn't work. Uriah 
refused to go home. And so David takes it a step further. And when Uriah went back to the army, David sent a note with him to his commander-in-chief. And he said, put Uriah in the front of the battle. And allow him to be in the heat of the battle. And when you're in the middle of that, withdraw from him and allow him to be struck down. And that's exactly what happened. Uriah was killed. And now Bathsheba is a widow. And David graciously takes her in and his wife to provide for her needs. And everything is covered up. Except, what happens? Nathan the prophet is sent by God. And Nathan comes into David. And he begins to tell David this story about these two men who lived in the kingdom. And the one man was rich and had all these sheep and and he had all these riches. And when he had a he was getting ready to have a party, and he wanted to throw this party for the people that, that were coming. He wanted to have a lot of, of fancy food. And so what he did is he needed a sheep, he needed a lamb to kill for that, that party to, so they could have smoked lamb. And so he asked one of his servants, he said, Oh, we really got to get, and I'm just imagining here, maybe he said, Wow, the herd is really nice this year. We really hate to eat one of these sheep. I and mean, we really have something going here. So he looks around and he sees his neighbor has one sheep. And it's, it's a pretty good looking sheep too. And he tells his servant, he says, go over there and get that sheep. Go over and get that lamb and we'll kill it for our party. And so his servant goes over and, and takes that lamb from that man. And they, they kill it. And he, and he feeds his people at his party. And all is well. And Nathan said, He said this story, and David became angry, and he said, that man should die. And Nathan immediately said, David, you are that man. And I imagine as David said, that man should die, I'll bet it hit him. And he thought, oh, surely not. And Nathan said, you are that man, David. And David was called out for his sin. He couldn't get around it. Nathan knew what had happened. And David now writes Psalm 51. And this is a response to what happened in that whole story with Bathsheba and how Nathan called him out. And this is David's response to being called out in his sin. Psalm Psalm 51, beginning to read in verse 1, David says, Have mercy upon me, O God. According to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. You see, David is crying out for God's mercy because he understands the predicament he's in. He understands that, that God is a powerful God. He understands that God, God is a God of justice. He understands that, that God is, is almighty. He understands that God can take David and if he chooses to. Because David knows the history. He knows God's history. And we have history in the Old Testament how God would repeatedly, when there was sin in the Israelites or when there was sin in a nation, God would call it out. And God didn't just say, oh, please repent. I wish you would change your ways. No, God is a God of justice. God is a God of He's justice, he's also executioner. 
And there are different times in the Old Testament when there was sin that God would just open up the ground and swallow people up and he would close the ground back over them because they were sinful. And there were times that God would open up the water and he would take a sinful nation and he would take them in the middle of the water and he would cover the water up. He would cover them up. And they would wash away. That's how God dealt with sin. And now God, now David is saying, God, please, I need your mercy. Because David knew what kind of a God he served. David knew how big his God was. And there's nothing, there's nothing more amazing and maybe even delightful than something that has so much power but is, is so controlled. Years ago when I worked in construction, we would use Brother Larry's um, his excavating crew. And he had two men that worked on that crew that had ran excavators for years. And I can run an excavator, but I don't really, I don't really like if people are close to the boom because I can dig dirt, but just don't get too close. But these guys had experience, and they were good. And I remember being in the hole, and, and I was down there. I would run the, the uh, laser, and, you know, we were, they were up on top of the... We were digging a basement, and so it, it's hard to see how level the ground is. And so my job was to run that laser down there, and we would tell them up or down. And we're trying to grade it as close as we can, because if we grade it too high, we're going to have a lot of handwork with a shovel, okay? Because we have to get it pretty close. If we grade it too low, we're going to have to fill it in with gravel. And so, you know... My job is to make it as easy for us as a construction crew as we can. And so we're telling them up and down. And after working around that hoe for the day, you start feeling pretty confident because you see they're using that thing and they're just, it just does exactly what they want. And they can come right up to the wall of dirt and they can just shave off a little bit and they can do this. And we used to joke about it. We, we began to trust these guys so much. And I remember one guy on the crew said, you know, he said, I'd about trust him to pick my nose with that thing. <laughs> but what's so amazing about a machine like that is the power that it has. And one little side move could just kill a man. But when somebody knows what they're doing and can gently reach out and so carefully operate that thing, it's amazing. And brothers and sisters, that's the kind of God we have. That's the God that we have that he's so big and he's so powerful and he's so destructive. And we need to realize that. But that's the same God that comes along and is so gentle and so loving and so kind. And he cares. And he knows where we're at. And David realized that. That's why David is calling out and he's saying, God, have mercy on me. Because he knows God could bring justice. He knows God could open up the ground. He's crying out for God's mercy. He knows that he's out of favor with God in his current state. He knows that he's being judged. That God knows what he did. And he knows that God is the ultimate judge. How does God look at sin? In Psalm 5, verses 4 and 5, it says, For thou art not a God that hath pleasure in wickedness, neither shall evil dwell with thee. The foolish shall not stand in thy sight. Thou hatest 
all workers of iniquity. Written by David. David knows what kind of God he's dealing with here. God hates iniquity. And David realizes that. And he's saying, God have mercy on me. Because he knows God despises iniquity. God despises sin. Only God is able to erase this problem. And David knows it, knows it. The last that verse says, blot out my transgressions. David knows that God is the only one that can blot this out. Verse 2, wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. David knows that only God brings pureness. Only God is able to bring openness in his heart. Only God can bring cleansing. And David is asking for that. Verse 3. For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. I think this is the first step in dealing with this sin. And specifically... Any sin, but today we're looking at the sin of USB, unwanted sexual behaviors. The first step is exactly what David is doing here. David says, for I acknowledge my transgressions. He says, I did it. I did it. When Nathan confronted him, David says, that was me. You're right. He didn't try to cover it up. He said, I did it. And I think that's one of the, the first steps and keys towards healing, towards being restored is saying, yes, I did it. I'm guilty. Acknowledgement. Verse 4, against thee, thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. So why is David saying against you, God? Didn't he sin against Bathsheba? Didn't he sin against Uriah? He had him killed. So why, why is he pointing out and saying, I sinned against you, God? You need to realize who David was. David was the king. David was, was top man in his kingdom. If David wanted to, he had the power to. He could have said, I like Bathsheba. I want her for my wife. Who is going to hold him to judgment? Where was the court that was going to say, we've looked at this case? And she was not your wife, David. You're wrong. There was no court. Ultimately, there was nobody that was going to hold David accountable except for God. God was the ultimate authority, but David realized that and placed himself under that authority saying, God, 
I have sinned against you. Because he realized God was the one that was going to hold him accountable. Nobody else was probably going to speak up about it, right? Because the king could have had them killed too, right? He would have sent them out to the battlefield and said, put them in the front and retreat. Kill him too. I don't want to hear that. David realized who he was up against. David didn't have to fear imprisonment because that wasn't going to happen. There wasn't going to be judgment. God was the ultimate judge. David acknowledged who he was responsible to. He also acknowledged who this sin was against. And I think the second step of recovery is found here in this verse, acknowledging who my sin affected. Ultimately, when we sin, it, it affects my relationship with God. There's a separation. When there's sin in my life, when there's sin in my heart, it separates my relationship with God. And it also affects those around me. And yes, we do need to acknowledge those people, I think, and go to them and ask for forgiveness. But that's next week's message. David realizes that, but he's not there yet in verse 4. You see, David is submitting himself to God to be judged as the ultimate judge. The judge the person that is ultimately going to hold David responsible because nobody else is going to. David is bringing himself under that and saying, God, I'm allowing you to judge me and I'm guilty. God, I'm guilty. And he's accepting that judgment. And this psalm shows that. I think it's important that we willingly admit a sin and acknowledge the wrong that we've done and committed. And I think God has, God has ways of, of working in our hearts, and God has ways of bringing those things to light. And that's exactly what God did in this situation, is he brought Nathan the prophet and he called David out, and David said, yeah, that was me. But how much more powerful if David would have on his own came to the place where he realized it and would have said, oh nation, we need to have a meeting tonight. And he could have sat down with his close advisors first and he could have, he could have said, you know what, I'm your leader and I have failed. And he could have sat down with the people and said, I have failed. Wouldn't that have been more powerful how could that situation have been redeemed? It may have saved Uriah's life, for one. And we know what happened, the, the history of, of that child that was born to Bathsheba and, and died, and it just, it started a whole tangle of, of family issues because of David's sin. And some of that could have been avoided if David would have heeded the spirit if David would have realized his sin and said, 
I made a mistake. And I think that is God's, that is God's first intent in sin, is that he, he's given us the Holy Spirit living within us, and there's a, a, there's a prodding that I feel, that, that we feel when we're living in sin. I think it's God's desire for us to acknowledge it and to say, this is going to be really hard, but I've sinned. And if we're not willing to do that, I think God goes to number two plan. And God brings people in our lives who start somehow poking us. And that doesn't feel good. And I'll admit it, it, it doesn't feel good. And we don't like that. But God sometimes places people in our lives who, in strategic places and circumstances, and he begins to gently coax us to him and say, brother, sister, don't forget what happened back here. Don't forget about the night you were on top of your house looking around. And remember what happened. And God has ways of bringing us around. But I think God's first desire is that we acknowledge it and say, that was me. Verse 5, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. This is a third step, and this is a hard one. But I think sometimes we need to just own it. David is saying, that's the person I want. That's the person I am. I was born in iniquity. I have a sin nature. That is my tendency. Instead of sugarcoating and saying, well, yeah, that wasn't really me. I was just in an awkward situation, and you just wouldn't believe how it happened. And No, David said, that's who I am. Aside from God, I am a sinful person. I was born in iniquity. That's, that's the real me when God isn't overshadowing my whole life. When God isn't leading me, that's who I naturally am. That's, that's the real me. That's the David. But for God. You know, there's a scientific explanation of why USB is referred to as an addiction. And sometimes we don't, we maybe think, well, that's, that's kind of a strong word to use because it's substances, there's substance addiction and there's drug addiction, but, but we're trying to make it less than it is by saying that it's a, a, an addiction. But there's actually scientific explanation of why. And an addiction is, in a, uh, the definition of an addiction is something that I keep coming back to repeatedly. And so I keep, I like it, so I come back to it. I leave it, and I come back to it. And I just, I just about can't help myself. Because see, even in, in, a, in a drug addiction, there's something that happens. When, I, when you take that drug, there's a chemical in our bodies called dopamine. And it's, dopamine is a, is a chemical that when released, makes us feel good. And so there's a, 
it kind of gives us a little high. And there's various ways we, we and it's not, it's not wrong. God gave us that in, God designed our bodies in that way. Having a, a dopamine release is not sin. I want to be clear. It's that, it's that release of, oh, that was fun. That was enjoyable. Maybe it's, it's looking at a nice sunset. And, and, oh, and it just, oh, it just, we just enjoy that. Maybe it's, it's a good steak and we take a bite and, and we enjoy that. Maybe it's sitting in the tree stand and a buck comes along and, oh, after they leave, you know, we're just we're so excited. And so it's, it's, it's what we enjoy as we, as we relate to people also. There's a fulfillment that we find. And so we, we get that and God is designed, he wants us to enjoy that. But what happens is when there's a drug addiction is that we, we take that drug or whatever it is or alcohol or there's something that's given to us and huh, it makes us feel good. And we say, well, that was, we remember back when we, our mind says, well, that felt good back here. Let's do it again. And so we repeat the cycle. And that's what an addiction is. And sexual addictions are the same way. It makes us feel good. But outside of marriage, God did not design it that we get a dopamine boost. But what happens is we start using it outside of God's design, and we destroyed what God gave us to use and enjoy. And we start abusing it. We start burning the tires off of our car. God didn't design it that way. You see, a person that is addicted to USB, there are certain things that trigger him, that cause him to go back there. Some weeks ago, I was, I was we had some, some of you actually invited over for, for a, a dinner, I think it was Sunday evening for supper, and I was smoking meat Saturday. And so it takes like 10 to 12 hours to smoke pork. And so that thing was, my smoker was going. And I was doing projects around the house and outside. So every now and then I would step outside of the house. And as I came out, I would get that sniff of smoke. And right away I was like, oh, you know, I could, I could use a pork sandwich, you know. And I'm looking forward to Sunday night. You see, I didn't even have to taste it. But immediately when, my, when I smelled it, something started happening. My body started saying, last time you smelled that, we had pork. Now how did my mind, did my mind see the smell? My mind didn't even, it didn't, I wasn't even seeing it. But just the smell caused something to come up in my mind that said, when I smelled that last time, that was really good. I'd like to have some more. And that's exactly what happens when we have a USB addiction. That our mind starts saying, when we go to a certain place or we do a certain thing or I pull out my phone and nobody's around, my mind says, you know what? Last time nobody was around, and last time you got this phone out, that felt really good. That's an addiction. And in fact, scientific studies have said that people who are addicted to pornography, actually just hearing a computer start up, the sound of a computer starting up, makes their mind go and they say, hey, you know what? Last time that computer started up, guess what I got? And it's triggered. And friends, when that dopamine fix is going, when, we're, when, that, when that has been released, there's a part of our brains that helps us make right and wrong decisions. 
And we are not, but for the grace of God, when that dopamine fix hits, we can't line up and make good decisions because that's how God has made us. That dopamine fix is supposed to block out everything that we can enjoy it. But when we abuse it and use it in the wrong way, that thing kicks in. And suddenly when I find, why is it so hard to say no? It's because I'm in the middle of that dopamine fix and I'm just, I feel helpless all of a sudden. And that's why. Because it's an addiction. And my body says, I really want that. And I just can't help myself. See, God didn't design us to be experiencing that. And that's why it's an addiction. The long way around. But that's why it's an addiction. is because it, it has a grip on our life. It has a grip on our mind. And we want it. We want that fix. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We need to realize that. We have a sinful nature that is right beneath the surface. And we need to keep it in check. Verse 6, Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden parts thou shalt make me to know wisdom. David is saying, God, you desire truth. You want trustworthiness. You want me to be a truthful person, to not hide things from others around me. You see, living in sin negates my trustworthiness to others. When I'm living in sin... And you as ladies are probably more perceptive to this. But for you men who are married, sometimes your wife says, yeah, that person doesn't make me feel good. And there's some reason God has given ladies an intuition where red flags go up. And I want to be careful. And I think we should be careful to not allow our feelings to drive things that are not, that we don't have proof of. But I believe God did give us an intuition. And there are times where something doesn't ring true about a person. And sometimes it can be because a person is living in sin. And he divides this up and he makes a comparison to our bodies. And he talks about, behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part thou shalt make me to know wisdom. And so there are two parts here, and the one is the inward part. And and we could say, well, those are the parts of our body that you can't see. We know we have kidneys. We know, Brother Roy, you, you know you have a kidney, right? And you know when it's not working, there's problems. But we don't see that part. But it's an important part. It's, it's, it's a part of the body that's, that's hidden. And he said there are inward parts. So what are those? Are they the, maybe the things that I do in secret? Maybe the things that other people don't see? It's the, 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 the things on my phone that I have behind my locked screen. Nobody can get into my phone except me because I have a password. You know, that excuse, that way the children don't get into my phone, right? Uh, but is that, is that really why I do it? Or am I hiding something? Are there apps on my phone that are, not, that are hidden? I don't know. I just happen to know that that's possible because every now and then one of my apps will disappear and I'm trying to figure out, well, where's my messaging app? And I go to reload it and it says, no, you already have it loaded on your phone. So then you have to go in and restore it to your home screen. Do I have stuff hidden 
off of my home screen that are on my phone. And if I do, I say, why? Those are the inward parts. Those are the, those are the, the, the parts that I can hide that people don't see. And then there are the outer parts. There are, there are, getting ahead of myself. Those inward parts, I believe, are, those are, are, probab- are probably more referring to my mind and my, my fantasy. Okay, something, something that you will never see, and I will have to tell you that is there. Okay, I believe that is the inward part. My hidden part are my, my things on my phone that I, I choose to hide. They are my feet, which you know are here, but I have chosen to cover them up so that you don't see them. Those are the, the outward parts that I hide. So there's an inward part and an outward part, and David's saying both of those are important. Things that go on that you'll never see, and the things that you could see, but I choose to cover up. Am I hiding things from others? And why? Why? You know, today's, I want you to think about your own life. I want you to think about those inward and those hidden things, the things that nobody knows, the things that you've chosen to hide, the things that go on behind in your mind. And I want, to, want you to evaluate those. In Isaiah chapter 59, verses 19 to 20, it says, So shall they fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. And I referred to this earlier as a tsunami, and I think the scripture depicts that. It says, when the enemy shall come in like a flood. And so we, we feel like this, this immorality, this, all this sin, like just hits us. It's just coming in like a flood, and it's, it's taking over. When the enemy shall come in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord shall lift up a standard against him. And the Redeemer shall come to Zion, and unto them that turn from transgression in Jacob, saith the Lord. We feel like this thing is is a wave that is just overtaking us, but he's saying, no, God has made a way of escape. God has made a way to bring reconciliation to this problem. There is a plan in place. God has raised a standard against the devil and what he's trying to do. He's raised a standard, and he's, he's made a way of escape. But the first step is to turn from transgression. It's me saying, that's me. You're right. God, you're right. You see who I am. That is the first step. Second Timothy chapter 1, Paul is giving encouragement to Timothy, the young man. And he warns him of several things, or he encourages him in different ways. And he's telling him, Timothy, you need to fight the fight. You need to go forward. And he's trying to encourage him to get out and get into the battle. And there's an encouraging verse there that I think we need this morning. And it's 2 Timothy 
1, verse 7, it says, For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. I don't think God wants us to be fearful. And I fear too often with this subject in our Anabaptist churches, it has been a taboo. We can't talk about it because it's not proper. But we are facing it, and it is a problem. And if we don't call it out and face it, it's going to become a bigger problem. And what we have hidden for so many years is going to mushroom out. And it's going to be evident, and it already is. It's already starting to peek its head out. And we start trying to push it down. We push it down over here, and it bubbles up over here. And so we go over here, and we hold it down. And that's not good enough, brothers and sisters. But we don't need to fear. And we shouldn't have to be afraid to come out and say, yeah, that's me. As a church, as a leadership, as one of your leaders, I want to care for you. I'm more concerned that you are doing well spiritually than that you are held to the fire and punished for what you did. That's not my job, to punish. Next week, we'll talk about more of this. Are there consequences lived out? Did David have consequences? David, David came to God, and he, and he pleaded for forgiveness, and he did everything right, right? That's why we have the Psalms. But yet, there were still consequences that were lived out. That's, we can't help that. That is not my design. It is not us as a leadership's design to bring consequences. That happens. That is God's design. We reap what we sow. But my intent as a leader and as a, your brother is not to make somebody look bad or less than or the oddball because they have this problem. No, when we face the facts, there's probably a lot in general Christianity and in the Anabaptist church that struggles with this, and we're just not willing to admit it. And it needs to be a safe to come out and say, I need help. And brothers, I would, I would be the first one to cheer you on and to encourage you in my own feeble attempts. And I want to learn how to help people like that. I want to learn how to help my sons and the people around me to do well in this because we're facing it. And it's something that I face personally. You know, I don't necessarily want all my history put up on the page either here for everybody to see. But God is not only a God of judgment and destruction. He's also a gracious God. And we want to look at that next week. But there is a way of repentance. There is a way of restoration that can happen when we care for one another and when we're willing to say, if we haven't struggled, we can say, but for the grace of God, I would be right where you're at, brother. How can I help you? And that's what we need to do for one another. Scripture in Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. David. David.
wide open book. God, search me, try me, lead me. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you. Lord, thank you for the way of forgiveness, the plan of salvation that you've given to us. Lord, thank you that there is a way of escape for every evil. And Lord, we just we acknowledge the, the many evils that we face in our nation, in our world. And Lord, I pray that you would just touch our hearts and bring us to you. Lord, allow us just search these benches now. Lord, if there's your spirit is convicted, I pray that you would just uh, speak clearly and plainly this morning. Lord, help us to acknowledge where we've failed. And Lord, help us as a brother to rally around a brother or sister who's struggling and, and give them encouragement and allow them to see that, you know, I struggled there too. I, I have, you're not any different than I am. I may be on a different part of the pathway now or maybe I'm facing it also and brother how can we encourage each other I pray that we as a brotherhood would be honest with our own selves and our hearts and may your spirit direct us I don't know where you find yourself this morning but as we close this part of the service I just feel like it's If you've been in some way convicted, or if you feel like, yeah, that's me, and you want to take a step for that restoration, I invite you to go to the back, and somebody will come back and pray with you. And somebody will help you start on that journey. It doesn't matter your age. It doesn't matter what family you come from. It doesn't matter if you're single or married. It doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman. It doesn't matter if you're a member of the church or not. But God desires all of us to have a clear heart. And this morning, I just invite you to take that step if you want to. doesn't really matter what the people around you think. And Satan wants us to think that, well, how embarrassing. But there is going to time, there is going to come a time when all that is in secret is going to be made open and people will know. I just invite you this morning to be that person that says, yeah, that's me. Yes. And if you'll keep your eyes closed, I'm going to open it yet. Open it yet. If there's somebody that would, maybe doesn't want to go back to pray, but just wants to say this morning that, you know, this has been a struggle, or I, I did struggle with it, and I've, I have worked on it, and yet I find myself relapsing, or I've been... I've, I'm maybe not quite where I want to be. I invite you to raise your hand and just commit to finding somebody to walk with you, to encourage you, and to pray with you sometime this next week. 